the writer of the book of Hebrews was writing to a group of people, many of whom were on the verge of giving up their Christian faith. In fact, they knew many people who had already done this. They had already given up. And he was writing to those who were going to be listening to this letter. And he was encouraging them, don't you give up. You keep on. And I suppose that in any room this size with this many people, that for different reasons, there may be some in here who are on the verge of giving up. Whether it's personal things that are going on in your life or economic things or, or struggles with your faith or different, all kinds of different situations that may, that may be going on in your life. And, and you may be thinking to yourself, you know, it just doesn't seem worth it. Uh, I just, I just feel like, like giving up. I just feel like giving in to the world. And the writer of Hebrews would say to you what he said to his readers hundreds of years ago, don't give up. Don't give up because what you have is so much better. And he's talked about how that Jesus is superior. Now, he was writing to those who are on the verge of going back to Judaism. That's not the case here this morning. But we may be on the verge of going back to the world, just kind of giving up on our faith, going back to a a former lifestyle. And he says, don't do that because what you have now is so much greater. What you have in Christ, what Jesus has to offer is so much superior to anything else that the world has to offer. Why would you go back? And we've already looked at in the first two uh, chapters that Jesus, he said, his words are superior. He is superior to the angels. Jesus' salvation is superior And then he offered this warning. He said, be careful that you don't drift. And be careful that you do not ignore or neglect that superior or great salvation that Jesus provides. And then last week we looked at what I think are some of the most important and meaningful verses in all of the Bible. Certainly in this book of Hebrews where the writer tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Wow. Isn't that an awesome thought? That Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. How many of you are the oldest sibling in your family? Okay. So you know what it is to be ashamed of your brothers and sisters. Am I right? You know, your little brother, your little sister, just, you know, and you're just sometimes it's just like, oh, please. Mom, dad, do I have to have anything to do with them? Or if you're, if, if it's really bad and, you, and you're ever in the same school at the same time, it was just like, oh, you know, no, I don't even know that little child or whatever. Jesus... And he has lots, doesn't he have lots of reasons for which he could be ashamed of us? We give him lots of opportunities. But it says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And then it says that he partook of flesh and blood. He became like us in every way. 
He was tempted just like you and I are yet without sin so that he could become a merciful high priest and so that he can help us in those moments when we are struggling. If you are on the verge of giving up, if there's things going on in your life that are seemingly making Christianity not worth it, Jesus is saying, I have been there. I have struggled. And I'm telling you, don't. Don't give up. Which brings us to chapter 3. And we're going to read the first 12 verses here of chapter 3, where the writer talks about now that Jesus is superior to Moses. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He is faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold to the courage and the hope of which we boast. He says here, and of course Moses is one of the most revered people in the Jewish religion. Abraham and Moses, that, that was kind of, that was kind of it. You remember when Jesus went on the Mount of Transfiguration that it was Moses and Elijah who appeared with him there. And the people were enamored with Moses. The people had elevated Moses. The people almost worshiped Moses. And the writer comes along and says, as great as Moses was, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. And basically what he says is Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son in God's house. And we are part of that house, he says, if we hold on to the courage and the hope of which we boast. Courage is not the absence of fear, but doing what needs to be done in spite of our fears. His readers needed courage to withstand the persecution that they were going through. They needed courage to withstand the the struggles that they were in the midst of. Some of the struggles they all faced similarly. Some of the struggles, some of them faced individually and privately. But they were all struggling, just like in here, This morning, we're all struggling to some extent. We all have things that we are worried about. We all have things that we have doubts about. We all have things that that kind of consume us and threaten essentially our faith. And we need the courage, he says, to hold on to the end. And then he says that they needed their hope to remember that it is all worth it. Now, he's going to talk about hope more a little later in the letter, and we're going to talk about it more more then as well. Our summer youth series last week, we're going through that passage in Ephesians 4 that talks about all the ones, you know, one faith, one hope, one father, one baptism. And last week was on was on hope. 
And the difference, and we've talked about this before, the difference between the world's definition of hope and the Christian's definition of hope is that our hope has a foundation of expectancy. You know, I may hope to win a million dollars, but I don't really expect to. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. The hope that we have is based in the faithfulness of God and his promises. Wow. That's why a little later on he's going to say, hope is our anchor to our soul. So he says you've got to have courage and you've got to have hope. And Jesus is superior to Moses, which then leads us to the second warning in the book. And this warning includes our theme verse. So beginning in verse 13 of chapter four, of chapter three, excuse me, beginning in verse 12 of chapter three, it says, see to it brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. As just has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter into his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that, we, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So here he's talking about Israel in the days of Moses, after being led out of Egypt and being led to the promised land. That the Israelites hardened their hearts. And because of that, they did not get what God had promised them. That generation at least. God eventually made good on this promise, but to a totally different generation. And the writer is using that experience with Israel and Moses as a warning to us. Saying, look, don't let your hearts be hardened. Don't be like the Israelites were in the days of Moses. So this morning, I want us to explore three ways in which our hearts can be hardened to God. And the first one is our hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Part of our key verse. See to it that no one's heart or no one is hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, Satan has an amazing arsenal. To use against us. Over in Ephesians chapter 6. It talks about his, his darts. And flaming arrows. And all those different things. And you get the idea of Satan with this quiver. Full of, full of arrows. And maybe as he pulls them out. Each one of them has a different name. And it might be lust. Or it might be doubt. Or it might be whatever the case may be. And he's got all these different things. But one of the main ways. That Satan uses sin against us, the deceitfulness of sin, 
is by making sin look so good. You know, if sin didn't look good, we wouldn't do it, would we? If there wasn't some appeal to it, if there wasn't something that, 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 that you know, pricked our interest, we wouldn't get involved in it. But, oh, it looks good. You know, my wife, we have, we have some plastic fruit in our house. And the first time she bought this plastic fruit, it fooled me. You know, I get up kind of late at night and I wander into the kitchen to graze. And there is this beautiful looking apple. I think, wow, an apple. That sounds just about right. So I pick up the apple and thought, hmm, it feels a little weird, but looks like an apple. And I go to eat it. And I bite on it. And it's plastic. And I'm so disappointed. But that's what sin does. That's what Satan does with sin. He dresses it up. He makes it look so good. He makes it look like it's, uh, in, it's inviting, it's exciting, it's satisfying. Through advertising, through the media, television, movies, music, everything else. The world and Satan through the world just tells us that, that all of this sin is good, it's great. But it's deceit. It's deceiving us. Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of all lies. And sin can be deceptive. In James chapter 1 verses 14 through 16. James talks about how that, beginning in verse 13, when tempted, no one should say he is tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so Satan knows, Satan's smart. He knows what our individual weaknesses are. And that's what he is going to tempt us with. And it's going to be a strong desire on our part. And we're going to have to use every possibility, every piece of the armor that God gives us to withstand that temptation. Because that deceitfulness of sin will be there. The Israelites were so deceived... That they preferred to go back to Egypt. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4. It says that they said to Moses. We are sick of this manna. You know God had been raining manna down on them. Every day they had food to eat. And they finally said we are sick of this manna. You know what? I remember the good old days. The good old days back in Egypt. Where we had onions cucumbers, and leeks. I've told you before, I don't know what a leek is. But I'm not into cucumbers. And I'm not really into onions just as an onion. You know, as a added something, I like an onion. But they had these rose-colored glasses as they looked back. Oh, those were the good old days back in Egypt when we had onions, cucumbers, and leeks. And then in Numbers chapter 14, 
when they send the spies out to spy out the land and they come back and Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. Trust in God. God said we can do it. I know we can do it. And the other 10 spies says, oh, no, we can't. Did you see those people? They're giants. Their walls are huge. There's no way we can take the land. And the people agreed with the other 10 spies. And they said to Moses, what have you done to us, Moses? Why have you brought us here? Why have you brought us to the brink of the promised land? And now there's no way we can enter it. We want to go back. We want to go back to Egypt. We had it so good in Egypt. Really? You were slaves in Egypt. You were crying out to God to deliver you. He heard your cry. He sent Moses to deliver you. And now you want to go back? You want to go back to being slaves? You want to go back to not having a, a, a place of your own? I'm taking you a place. It's going to be yours. You want to go back to a place in which you will always be foreigners? In which you will always be slaves? Would you always be second class or worse? Why would you do that? And sometimes we sometimes have that same attitude. We become a Christian. We give up our past lifestyle or we give up some some past sin. And sometimes when we think about the past, we think about it with a smile. We think about it with a little glimmer in our eyes. Well, you know, back in the day, I used to... Back before I became a Christian, I used to... And it's not with guilt or shame or, or disappointment in ourselves because that's the way we lived. We look back on it almost with pride. Look back on it with joy. We think, oh, man, those were the good old days. Now that I'm a Christian, I don't get to do all those things. Why would we look back on it? Why would we look back on a time in which we were slaves to sin? Why would we look back on a time with joy when we were condemned? Objects of God's wrath. We cannot and should not be deceived by sin's deceitfulness. Secondly, is our disobedience can cause a hard heart. God told them to leave, and they did. God told them to cross the Red Sea, and they did. God provided food and water. And yet, at the first opportunity, they make a golden calf, And worship it. They enter into sexual immorality with the Moabites. On the brink of entering the promised land. And then when God told them. We're here. We're here. The land that I promised long ago to your forefathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We're here. Go get it. They said, "Uh uh-uh, we can't do it. We can't do it. 
and they disobeyed God. One of the things that's interesting about that story that I I think is interesting is that when God's anger burns against Israel because they listened to the ten spies and didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb, and God brings down his judgment and justice and edict on them. And he says, because you did not believe me, because you did not obey me, this entire generation is going to die. You won't enter the promised land. You're going to wander in the desert, wander in this wilderness. Your carcasses are going to fall in the desert and rot. Until this whole generation who did not believe me and did not obey me die. And do you remember what happened? They said, ooh, we changed our minds. We can do it. And Joshua and Caleb and Moses are like, you better not. You better not now. God was with you before. God's not with you now. And some of them tried to go up and they were destroyed. But we can disobey God. And the more we disobey God, the harder our hearts become. You've been there. You know, you do something once. You feel guilty about it. It hurts your conscience. You do it again and, well, you don't feel quite as guilty. Conscience doesn't hurt quite as much. And you do it enough and eventually you're not guilty at all. And your conscience doesn't bother you at all. That's why the writer in the New Testament says that there were people who had had their consciences seared as with a hot iron. You know, you take a hot iron, you press it to your skin, that's going to kill the nerves. You're not going to be able to feel anything there anymore. Those of you remember that about four years ago, I guess it was, maybe three, four, I can't remember now how long ago it was, I had the shingles. And I had, you know, from what my doctor says, a pretty bad case of the shingles. And what the shingles do is the shingles affect the nerves. And the shingles can destroy the nerves. And what my shingles did, the case was so bad, that it actually destroyed the nerves right here under my skin. I can't feel that. That's numb right here. Because the nerves were destroyed. And when he talks about our consciences being seared as with a hot iron, that means that we can do something over and over again and we can rationalize it in our heads over and over again to the point that it no longer bothers us. That's why I ask you and I ask the young people all the time, you know, Jiminy Cricket used to say, always let your conscience be your guide. True or false? False or true. The writer also talks about those whose consciences have been trained. If your conscience has been trained correctly, then your conscience can be your guide. If your conscience has been seared as with a hot iron, you better not let your conscience be your guide. And I've seen it. You've seen it too, I imagine. 
people who begin to get involved in some sort of sin in their lives, they don't want to be around their Christian friends anymore. Because it reminds them of what they're doing. They don't want the preacher to come visit them. Because they know that they're living and what they're doing is not right. And he says here that our hearts can become hard by our disobedience to God. And the third thing that can harden our hearts is doubt. Now we already said when we were talking about courage a minute ago. That courage is not the absence of fear. And I've, we've talked about this several times. That I do not believe that faith is the absence of doubt. Just like courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to do what needs to get done in spite of fear. Faith is not the absence of doubt, but the ability, but the ability to do what God wants us to do even in the midst of our doubts. We continue to do what God wants us to do. Faith is doing God's will in spite of our doubts. I believe that we all have doubts from time to time. Whether caused by a tragedy in our life, whether caused by an illness, whether caused by temptation, maybe caused by the failure of others. Have you ever had a Christian brother or sister that you thought thought so highly of that you put up on a pedestal That you thought the world of them. And then they fall. Maybe they even give up their faith. That could be devastating to our faith. But we don't put our faith in each other. I mean, we do to some extent. But ultimately, we don't put our faith in each other. We put our faith in God. Remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, I think, maybe 2 Corinthians 11. No, well, anyway, it's one of those Corinthians 11. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me blindly. Follow me as I follow Christ. Because I may make a misstep here or there. I want to take you with me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Many of the examples of faith that we have had to work through their doubts. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. Oh, wow. Did he struggle with his faith or not? Yeah, he struggled with his faith. Moses, Moses struggled with his faith from the very beginning at the burning bush. He did everything he could. To talk God out of using him. But he still did. Wandering around in the wilderness. There were times when. You know. It was almost as if. Moses and God. Would would, would have to help one another. At different times. There would be times when Moses would say. I've had it with these people. I'm done. I'm sick of them. I quit. And God says. No, 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 no. Calm down Moses. It'll be all right. 
But you know, there's other times where God says, I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, calm down. You don't really want to do that. What's everybody going to say about you if, you know, they say, ooh, their God brought them out in the wilderness and destroyed them all. Moses had doubts. David had doubts. The apostles had doubts. In the high school class, junior high and high school class, we're in that section, John 13 through 17, that last supper, that last time that Jesus with his disciples. And in chapter 14, you know, verses 1 through 4, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be with me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you with me so that where I am, you may be with me also. And you know the way to the place I'm going. And Thomas is freaking out. Thomas is beside himself. Jesus had just said, I'm leaving you. Y'all can follow later. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 Jesus. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going? And this is the same Thomas that a little while later, when the others tell him Jesus was here, he was raised from the dead, he's going to say, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Not until I touch his hands and his side will I believe. Doubts. They all had doubts. John the Baptist. We think of the person who probably understood Jesus the most. Understood Jesus' ministry the most. John the Baptist is in jail. And things aren't going even the way he thought they should go. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, look, John John wants to know. Are you the one? Are you the one? Now, early on, John had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There comes one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He was convinced. He knew Jesus was the Christ. But now things weren't working out even as John thought they would work out. And he had doubts. We're all going to suffer doubts from time to time. But we cannot give up. That's why when we did our whole series on doubt. I said it comes down, for me at least, to holding on to two things. God is and God loves me. God is and God loves me. If I can hold on to that, I can keep my faith even in the midst of my doubts. And that's what I think the writer of Hebrews is telling his readers and telling us today. Look, God is and God loves you. What God has promised you is so worth hanging on for. It is so worth being obedient for. It is so worth giving up your life 
of sin. It is so worth struggling even with your doubts. Don't give up. Stay strong. Have the courage. Believe in your hope. Things may be getting bad here. Things may be difficult here. Things may seem overwhelming here. But hope is our anchor. God's going to make it all better. I go and prepare a place for you. And in Revelation, it's a place in which there are no more tears. There's no more pain. And there's no more sorrow. Whatever you're going through this morning, it's worth it to stick it out. It's worth it to hold on to your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.